don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy. I am Guy Swan. Today, we are continuing with part three of Money, Bitcoin, and Time by Robert Breedlove. We are hitting uh, the history of gold and uh, just the nature of hard money and comparative monies that were once hard and then became soft as new technologies developed and uh, civilizations began to mix with each other. We're going to talk about the price system and how it's a nervous system for the economy and how it accounts for vast amounts of information that no single um, institution or group or boardroom of people could ever possibly know or even have access to information that's temporal, that only lasts a matter of hours, but that affects in a major way um, uh, prices and the establishment and supplies. Uh, supply and demand of these markets. So much cool stuff to go into today um, uh, with the continuation. If you have not listened to part one and uh, or part two, I uh, highly recommend it. You can go back. There should be some degree of standalone power with this, but uh, it would definitely be better to cover it through um, as one single piece. So uh, go back to those pieces if you have not yet. But if you have listened to them, well, let's go ahead and jump into part three, starting at the economic nervous system. The economic nervous system. Market prices are an essential communicative force in economics. As economic production moves from a primitive scale, it becomes harder for individuals to make production, consumption, and trade decisions without having a fixed frame of reference, a unit of account, which to compare the value of different objects to one another. In his paper, The Use of Knowledge in Society, Friedrich Hayek elucidated the economic problems as not merely a matter of allocating human effort. More accurately, the economic problem is one of allocating human effort according to knowledge that is distributed in the minds of people that are each primarily concerned with their respective area in the broader economy. The distributed knowledge includes the conditions of production, the availability of the factors of production, and preferences of individuals. Knowledge, due to its dynamic and fluid nature, cannot be fully known by a single entity as it is constantly in flux and widely distributed within many minds. In a free market economic system, prices capture this distributed knowledge, convert it into impartial information, and disseminate it widely. Price signals are the coordinating force of free market systems. Each individual decision-maker can faithfully rely on the prices of goods relevant to their production process, as the prices themselves are a distillation of all known market realities into a single 
actionable variable. Each individual's buy and sell decisions in turn further shape prices, which carry this altered information back out into the market. Price signals are to market participants what light is to the eye. To understand this point, consider the 2010 earthquake, which badly damaged an area in Chile responsible for a great deal of the world's copper production. This earthquake severely damaged copper mines and export infrastructure, which immediately reduced the flow of new supply to the world copper market and resulted in a 6.2% increase in its price. Anyone in the world whose business interfaces with the copper market will be affected by this, but they do not need any specific knowledge about the earthquake in Chile or market conditions to decide how to respond. All the relevant information they need to make effective decisions is contained within the price of copper itself. Immediately, all firms that demand copper are incentivized to demand less, delay purchases, or find substitutes. On the other side of the market, all firms that produce copper are incentivized to produce more of it. With a natural shift in price, everyone in the world involved in the copper industry is incentivized to act in a way that alleviates the negative consequences of the earthquake. This is the power of a free market with accurate price signals. The wisdom of the crowd is always superior to the wisdom of the boardroom. There is simply no way to recreate the adaptivity and collective intelligence of markets by installing a centralized planning authority. How would they decide who should increase production and by how much? How would they decide who should reduce consumption and by how much? How would they coordinate and enforce their decisions in real time on a global scale? In this sense, prices are the economic nervous system that disseminate knowledge across the world and help coordinate complex production processes by incentivizing supply and demand changes that match economic reality and restore market equilibriums quickly, efficiently matching buyers and sellers in the marketplace, and compensating producers for their work efforts. Without accurate price signals, humans could not benefit from the division of labor and specialization beyond a small scale. Trade allows producers of goods to mutually increase their living standards by specializing in goods in which they have a relative or comparative advantage, goods they can produce relatively faster, cheaper, or better. Accurate prices expressed in a common, stable medium of exchange help people identify their comparative advantage and specialize in it. Specialization guided by reliable price signals enables producers to improve their efficiency of production and accumulate capital specific to their craft. This is why the most productive allocation of human efforts is only determinable by an accurate pricing system within a free market. Also, as we will see later, this is exactly why capitalism prevailed over socialism. 
because socialism lacked an economic nervous system. But before diving into the economic aspects which underpinned this historical, ideological struggle and seeing how it is still relevant today, we first need to understand the evolutionary forces that has shaped money throughout history. Monetary Evolution Throughout history, money has taken many forms. Seashells, salt, cattle, beads, stones, precious metals, and government paper have all functioned as money at one or more points in history. Money roles are naturally determined by the technological realities of the societies shaping the saleability of goods. Even today, forms of money still spontaneously emerge with things like prepaid mobile phone minutes in Africa or cigarettes in prisons being used as localized currencies. Different monetary technologies are in constant competition, like animals competing within an ecosystem. Although instead of competing for food and mates, like animals, monetary goods compete for the belief and trust of people. Believability and trustworthiness form the basis of social consensus, the source of a particular monetary good's sovereignty from which it derives its market value, along with the trust factors and permissions necessary to transact with it. As these competitions continue to unfold in a free market, goods attain and lose monetary roles according to the traits which determine how believable or trustworthy they are and are expected to remain over time. As we will show, free market competition is ruthlessly effective at promulgating hard money as it only allows those who choose the hardest form available to maintain wealth over time. This market-driven natural selection causes new forms of money to come into existence and older forms to fade into extinction. Like biologically driven natural selection, in which nature continuously favors the organisms which are best suited for success in their respective ecologies, this market-driven natural selection is a process in which people naturally and rationally favor the most believable and trustworthy monetary technologies available in their respective trade networks. Unlike ecological competition, which can favor many dominant organisms, the marketplace for money is driven by network effects and favors a winner-take-all, or at least a winner-take-most dynamic, as the non-coincidence of wants problem is universal. And if a single hard money is capable of solving all three of its dimensions, then it will become dominant as discussed earlier in the social network aspects of money. An example of this market-driven natural selection of money comes from the ancient rye stones system of Yap Island, located in what is today Micronesia. Rye stones were large disks of various sizes with a hole in the middle that weighed up to 8,000 pounds each. These stones were mined in neighboring Palu, or Guam, and were not native to Yap. Acquiring these stones involved a labor-intensive process of quarrying and shipping. Procuring the largest rye stones required workforces numbering in the hundreds. Once the stones arrived in Yap, they were placed 
in a prominent location where everyone could see them. Owners of the stones could then use them as payment by announcing to the townsfolk the transfer of ownership to a new recipient. Everybody in the town would then record the transaction in their individual ledger, noting the new owner of the stone. There was effectively no way to steal the stone because its ownership was recorded by everyone. In this way, the rye stones solved the three dimensions of the non-coincidence of wants problem for the Yapis by providing saleability across scales as the stones were various in size and payments could be made in fractions of a stone. Saleability across space as the stones were accepted for payment everywhere on the island and did not have to be moved physically, just recorded by the townsfolk's individual ledgers, remarkably similar to Bitcoin's distributed ledger model, as we will see later. And saleability across time due to the durability of stones and the difficulty of procuring new stones, which meant that the existing supply of stones was always large relative to any new supply that could be created within a given time period. In other words, a high stock-to-flow ratio. This monetary system worked well until 1871, when an Irish-American captain named David O'Keefe was found shipwrecked on the shores of Yap by the local islanders. Soon, O'Keefe identified a profit opportunity in buying coconuts from the Yapis and selling them to coconut oil producers. However, he could not transact with the locals because he was not a rye stone owner, and the locals had no use for his foreign forms of money. Undeterred, O'Keefe sailed to Hong Kong and acquired some tools, a large boat, and explosives to procure rye stones from neighboring Palu. Although he met resistance from them initially, he was eventually able to use his rye stones to purchase coconuts from the Yapis. Other opportunists followed O'Keefe's lead, and soon the flow of rye stones increased dramatically. This sparked conflict on the island and disrupted economic activity. By using modern technologies to acquire rye stones more cheaply, foreigners were able to compromise the hardness of this ancient monetary good. The market naturally selected against rye stones because as their stock-to-flow ratio declined, they became less reliable as a store of value and thus lost their saleability across time, which ultimately led to the extinction of this ancient monetary system. A similar story played out in Western Africa, which for centuries used agri-beads as money. These small glass beads were used in a region where glassmaking was an expensive craft, which gave them a high stock-to-flow ratio and made them saleable across time. Since agri-beads were small and light, they could easily be combined into necklaces or bracelets and transported easily, thus giving them saleability across scales in space. In the 16th century, European explorers discovered the high value ascribed to these beads by the West Africans and began importing them in mass quantities, as European glassmaking technology made them extremely cheap to produce. Slowly but surely, the Europeans used these cheaply produced beads to acquire most of the precious resources of Africa. The net effect of this incursion into Africa was the transference 
of its vast natural resource wealth to Europeans and the conversion of agribeads from hard money to soft money. Again, the market naturally selected against a monetary good once its stock-to-flow ratio began to decline as its store of value functionality and therefore its saleability across time were compromised as a result. Although the details vary, this underlying dynamic of a declining stock-to-flow ratio presaging a good's loss of its monetary role has been the same for every form of money throughout history. Today we are seeing a similar pattern cause the collapse of the Venezuelan Bolivar, where some Venezuelans are using Bitcoin to protect their wealth as the currency collapses. As societies continued to evolve, they began to move away from artifact money like stones and glass beads and towards monetary metals. It was initially difficult to produce most metals, which kept their supply flows low, thus giving them good saleability across time. Gold, in particular, with its extreme rarity in the Earth's crust and its virtual indestructibility, made it an extremely hard monetary technology. Gold mining was difficult, limiting supply increases relative to its existing supply, which itself could not be destroyed. Gold gave humans a way to store value across generations and develop a longer-term perspective on their actions, a lower time preference, which led to the proliferation of ancient civilizations. Graphic. The earliest coins are found mainly in the parts of modern Turkey that formed the ancient kingdom of Lydia. They are made from a naturally occurring mixture of gold and silver called electrum. Monetary Metals Julius Caesar, the last dictator of the Roman Republic, issued a gold coin called the Aureus coin, which contained a standard 8 grams of gold. The Aureus was traded widely across Europe and the Mediterranean, alongside a silver coin called the Denarius, which was used for its superior saleability across scales. Used together, these coins provided a hard money system that increased the scope of trade and specialization in the old world. The Republic became more economically stable and integrated for 75 years, until the infamous Emperor Nero came into power. Nero was the first to engage in the practice of coin clipping, in which he would periodically collect the coins from the population, melt them down, and mint them into newer versions with the same face value, but less precious metal content, keeping the residual content to enrich himself. Similar to modern-day inflation, this was a way of surreptitiously taxing the population by debasing its currency. Nero and successive emperors would continue the practice of coin clipping for several hundred years to finance government expenditures. Citizens gradually wised up to this deceit and began hoarding the coins with higher precious metal content and spending the debased coins as they were legally required to be accepted at face value in settlement of debts, one of the earliest instances of legal tender laws being implemented. This had the effect of driving up the price of coins with higher precious metal content 
and driving down the price of those with less, a dynamic that came to be known as Gresham's Law. Bad money, or soft money, drives good money, or hard money, out of circulation. This is an important law to recall when we look at how modern-day hoarding of Bitcoin impacts its price. Eventually, a new coin called the Solidus was introduced, which contained only 4.5 grams of gold, almost half the content of the original Aureus coin. With this fall in the value of its money, a cycle familiar to many modern economies running on government money began to take hold. Coin clipping reduced the money's real value, increased the money supply, gave the emperor the means to continue imprudent spending, and eventually ended with inflation and economic crisis. Analogous to central bank practices today, Swiss banker Ferdinand Lips summarized this era well. Quote, Although the emperors of Rome frantically tried to manage their economies, they only succeeded in making matters worse. Price and wage controls and legal tender laws were passed, but it was like trying to hold back the tides. Rioting, corruption, lawlessness, and a mindless mania for speculation and gambling engulfed the empire like a plague. End quote. Amid the chaos of the crumbling Roman Republic, Constantine the Great took power and would reverse the fortunes of empire by adopting responsible economic policies. He first committed to maintaining the solidus at 4.5 grams of gold, ended the practice of coin clipping, and began minting massive quantities of these standardized gold coins. He then moved east and established Constantinople in modern-day Istanbul. This became the birthplace of the Eastern Roman Empire, which adopted the solidus as its monetary system. While Rome continued its economic, social, and cultural deterioration until it finally collapsed in 476 AD, Constantinople flourished. The solidus, which eventually became known as the Besant, provided a hard money system with which Constantinople would remain prosperous and free for centuries to come. As with Rome before it, the fall of Constantinople happened only when its rulers began the debasing of its currency around 1050 AD. As with Rome, the move away from hard money led to the fiscal, cultural, and spiritual decline of the Eastern Roman Empire. After suffering many successive crises, Constantinople was ultimately overtaken by the Ottomans in 1453. However, the Besant inspired another form of hard money that still circulates to this day, the Islamic dinar. Seventeen centuries of people all over the world have used this coin, which began as the Solidus before changing its name to the Besant, and finally becoming the Islamic dinar, for transactions, thus highlighting the superior saleability of a hard money like gold across time. Following the collapse of the Roman Empire, Europe fell into the Dark Ages. It was the rise of the city-state, a new story mankind would begin organizing itself around, 
and its use of hard money systems that would pull Europe out of the Dark Ages and into the Renaissance. Beginning in Florence in 1252, the city minted the florin, which was the first major European coinage issued since Julius Caesar's Aris. By the end of the 14th century, more than 150 European cities and states had minted coins to the same specifications as the florin. By giving its citizenry the ability to accumulate wealth in a reliable store of value, which could be traded freely across scales, space, and time, this hard money system unlocked scientific, intellectual, and cultural capital within the Italian city-states and eventually spread to the rest of Europe. Of course, the situation was far from perfect, as there were still many periods marked by various rulers choosing to debase their currencies to finance war or lavish expenditure. A Global Gold Standard When they were being used as physical means of settlement, gold and silver coins served complementary roles. Silver, having a stock-to-flow ratio second only to that of gold, had the advantage of being a more saleable metal across scales, since its lower value per weight than gold made it ideal as a medium of exchange for smaller transactions. In this way, gold and silver were complementary, as gold could be used for large settlements and silver could be used for smaller payments. However, by the 19th century, with the development of modern custodial banking and advanced telecommunications, people were increasingly able to transact seamlessly across scales using banknotes or checks backed by gold. With all of the critical saleability characteristics gathered under a gold standard monetary system facilitated by paper banknotes, the superior saleability across scales of physical silver lost relevance, setting it up to become demonetized due to the winner-take-all dynamic discussed earlier. Ironically, the same banking industry that enabled a global gold standard would in later years see to its elimination. More on this later. A brief aside on silver. This demonetization dynamic also explains why the silver bubble popped many times throughout history when facing off with gold, and will pop again if it ever reflates. Since silver is not the hardest form of monetary good available, should any significant investment flow into silver, its producers will be incentivized to increase the flow of silver and store any value expropriated from its increased production in the hardest form of money available to them, which, before Bitcoin, was only gold. This, of course, will bring the price of silver crashing back down, taking the wealth from the investment inflows with it. As a more recent historical example of this dynamic in action, in the 1970s, the affluent Hunt brothers attempted to re-monetize silver by buying vast quantities of it in the market. This drove up the price initially, and the Hunt brothers believed they could continue driving up its price until they cornered the market. Their intent was to induce others to chase its appreciation and recreate a monetary demand for silver. As they kept buying and the price kept rising, silver holders and producers kept selling into the market. No matter how much the Hunt brothers purchased, 
the selling and flow of silver continued to outpace their buying, which decreased its stock-to-flow ratio and eventually led to a dramatic crash in the price of silver. The Hunt brothers lost over $1 billion. Due to rampant inflation of government money since then, their losses equal $6.5 billion in 2019 dollars. In the ordeal, which is likely the highest price ever paid for learning the importance of hard money and its defining metric, the stock-to-flow ratio. Driven by expanding telecommunications and trade networks, and with custodial banks enhancing its saleability across scales by issuing gold-backed banknotes and checks, the gold standard spread quickly. More nations began switching to paper-based monetary systems fully backed and redeemable in gold. Network effects took hold as more nations moved into the gold standard, giving gold deeper liquidity, more marketability, and creating larger incentives for other nations to join. Those nations which remained on a silver standard the longest before converting, like China and India, witnessed tremendous devaluations of their currencies in the intervening period. The demonetization of silver for China and India was an effect similar to the West Africans holding agri-beads when Europeans arrived. Foreigners who adopted the gold standard were able to gain control over vast quantities of the capital and resources in China and India. This drives home a key point. Every time hard money encounters a softer form of money in a trade network, the softer money is ultimately outcompeted into extinction. This dynamic has significant consequences for the holders of soft money and is an important lesson for anyone who believes their refusal of Bitcoin means they are protected from its economic impact. History shows us repeatedly that it is not possible to protect yourself from the consequences of others holding money that is harder than yours. Finally, for the first time in history, the majority of the world economy began operating on a gold-based, hard money standard that was naturally selected for by the free market. The Hardness of Gold Alright, let's take a break right here. Uh, we will jump into our sponsor. I need to uh, stretch my legs a bit and grab another drink. And we'll be back. And I want to kind of go through this section. Uh, if I have enough time, I think we're going to continue forward. So we'll find out in just a bit. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and get our sponsor. And uh, we'll jump back into uh, some commentary on this piece. So I really love the concept of the economic nervous system. This is, uh, this is very much in line with uh, some of the conversation I had with uh, Brandon Quidham and Dergigi on the uh, Bitcoin is a living organism, the It's Alive episode, and also how we talked about like humans as a networked organism. Like that there are these there are these very clear signaling mechanisms that incentivize us to alter our behavior to account for vast amounts of information without us ever having to know specifics of what that new or altered information is. And it's very much like how chemicals and our nervous system and hormones affect the, the behavior and the actions of our cells and where we direct resources to in our bodies when conditions change. So 
I've always thought that that was a fascinating analogy, and he starts off in this section, uh, uh, Robert Breedlove does, about talking about uh, Hayek's piece, The Use of Knowledge in Society. And I actually covered that. We read that in full on, um, on the podcast. It's two different uh, episodes, and I'll throw those in the show notes because um, I have quite a bit of uh, commentary to go along with those episodes. And if you are looking for a follow-up that like takes a deep dive into the nature of the price system, uh, it's just exploring some of the serious specifics on exactly how far down we can narrow in regards to the information that eventually leads to the establishment of some market price. It is a wonderful piece by Hayek, and I highly, highly recommend it. But one of the most dismissed, I think, which isn't really touched on because he doesn't go very deep into this other than hitting the main concept, was the, the idea and the value of temporal knowledge or the knowledge that is very, uh, very short-term or location-specific, like highly localized information is critically important to our everyday lives and decisions we make all the time and that, we are, that as individuals we are accounting for things thousands of things that we know without even realizing how much we are taking in and like for instance so I do a little bit of uh, trickery I have a process when I'm getting stuff fixed on my car in my local area because I'm combining information from a lot of different services that I have played around with and because I know people not only do I have a general knowledge about cars and engines and that kind of stuff like you know I can replace an alternator or a belt or something simple um that uh, I also know who to lean on for information that I don't have, and uh, uh, I know the varying specialities of some of the services that are at my disposal. So very recently, we paid off our car fully, um, which was great. Like, we were very happy, you know, like, you finally get that thing, and you're like, zero dollars left on it. It's like, I own my car. Wonderful. Happy news. And so this sounds like a joke, but as soon as we paid it off, within like two weeks, my, the engine starts to develop this awful, deep, rattling sound. So I had not uh, uh, given this thing or replaced oil um, in uh, quite some time. And so I was immediately like, all right, let's just go ahead and put some oil in it and see if I can at least make any dent into, into this sound. And it was two quarts low. It was awful. I really needed to give it some oil. Um, but the sound didn't go away. Uh, so uh, I, I get on the phone with my brother, and we kind of like sort out and start trying to eliminate things. Uh, he and uh, his good friend worked for a race team. So I'm, I'm utilizing them for knowledge to help diagnose this thing. Um, but I go to a AAA service station uh, that has like a standard $50 charge for diagnostic, and they're really good at diagnosing the issue. Um, they're overpriced in just about every other way, but they're great at diagnosing the issue, and they even take pictures um, of each thing that they find and then send it to you, which I love because like I can be like, I can send it to my brother and be like, dude, is this really, is this really like a problem? Like, this doesn't seem like it's that bad. Um, and so I can get second opinions because I have pictures of exactly the thing that they are proposing is wrong. And sure enough, my, uh, so I'd been talking to my brother on the phone and we were like, all right, it kind of sounds like this could be an engine mount. Had one go out uh, in the past. Sure enough, that was what was happening. There was a hydraulic engine mount on the left side of the engine 
and they could get me OEM parts, the original manufacturer parts, and he was like getting them from Toyota, for just around $400, and then it would just be another $250 to $300 to put it in, and a couple other little things. And they also noted that my transmission mounts were getting a bit worn as well, uh, so they quoted me at like $750 or whatever for uh, basically everything, and I could go ahead and save money and get the transmission mounts replaced as well. Turns out I can get an entire set of mounts, engine and transmission, on Amazon for about $120. Bucks, uh, $120. Uh, and then I actually have a different auto shop, one that is a little bit further down the road, uh, that charges less for labor, and they've got a little crew of like old people that literally probably run in this thing since the 80s or the 90s. And I just hand them my parts. They spend a couple of hours swapping out all my mounts. And I end up paying probably in total what it looks like right now, about $300, $320 to replace all of my mounts when I was quoted $750 before for just the two engine mounts. Now, I am utilizing an extraordinary amount of specific information that has real effects on the prices of these goods. And when other people leverage, like myself or my brother, um, like everybody in this household leverages me and I leverage my brother and his friend. Uh, I mean, we have multiple friends, my wife and her family, um, so many other people in the past. We have cumulatively probably kept tens of thousands of dollars off the table for wasted expenditure like I, knowing who to contact, like to be in touch with those people, is uh, this, this all of this knowledge? Every extrapolate this to the decisions and the deliberate trade-offs and the choices and the communities and the families of millions of people. None of this. It makes absolutely no sense for some central planner to be reorganizing my behavior or where I spend my funds to decide that I should be funding a different car repair, pay, repair place or a different car manufacturer, when that decision is taken out of my hands, how much efficiency is lost, even in a single dollar? Like just in the example I had a couple of weeks ago, I would, it, it, was, a, it was a difference between spending $3 versus $1 to get the same problem sorted out. And all of these decisions, all of this micro like the very granular knowledge that nobody can know as soon as they start to branch out and like leave my immediate area and like my family members the access that I have to this information they cannot by definition account for all of this and this this has real effects on the prices of these markets and it has effects on the supply of these goods that I know how to get them in some specific area or I know somebody who just happens to have some engine mounts from a busted car that, uh, you know, got rear-ended and uh, totaled, but uh, they have the engine mounts available. They're perfectly fine, and I can use them for dirt cheap. I am available to access information that someone else is not, um, is not privy to. And th this is just, like, one example, but this is something that we do hundreds, if not thousands of times every day where you know the person who's reliable to go to which could help produce more supply or more reliably reach the outcome that you're looking for in a quicker way, where you know that this is an overpriced 
alternative where if I just wait a couple of hours or I wait until tomorrow, I can find something that's a little bit cheaper or will better solve my problem. And we're talking about, we're isolating just a handful of decisions, but this is in aggregate. When we talk about the price system, we're talking about something that accounts for all of that individual knowledge. I am helping to create a price floor or a price ceiling in those markets that I participate in using the knowledge that I have access to. Any sort of central planner genuinely has no way to account for that. And to think that they can establish or dictate what a price is for the market is to assume that they could know better than the collective uh, cooperation and interaction between millions of other people who specialize and know local knowledge and all of their interactions, all of the values of their own time and their own money and how much they're willing to put up with and inconveniences or delaying from today or tomorrow, all of the collective decisions and trade-offs that we are making end up going into the price system. When one person or one boardroom of engineers or whatever is trying to establish what the actual price is of a good, they're accounting for none of this. They cannot, by their position, account for any of it. All they can do, all it's doing is replacing their one opinion with the interactions and active skin-in-the-game choices of the billions of people are, uh, participating in the market at many, at multiple different levels, all the way from capital goods down to the consumer goods. And the amount of information that just went into something as simple as getting an engine mount replaced happens at every stage of capital production, every stage of the manufacturing process, every stage of producing a product, every stage of the manager trying to decide between uh, uh, which, which employee to put in, uh, uh, make responsible for this specific thing to get done. We're talking about billions of things that go into the establishing of a natural market price and accounting for an incredible amount of information that cannot be replaced by some clever model or some really fancy uh, assessment of what the value of said good should be. Hopefully, hopefully that kind of got the point across. Um, uh, we will, uh, I, I will link to the use of knowledge in society where uh, Hayek really digs into this concept and uh, hits it from a number of different angles. And I think, it's, I think it's a really, really good piece to dig into. And the price system is very counterintuitive. So if you haven't really done any exploring on that, it's definitely one to... Uh, hit because it's a fascinating concept. But one of the things, like like the main idea to get out of the monetary evolution and that this history of money um, section that just is amazing with the history of metals and uh, going into Gresham's Law and stuff. The main idea is is so much that that was one of the things that really blew my mind when I started digging into Austrian economics and money as a technology is that the story of money is the story of society. Like, you can trace the rise and fall of empires through the destruction or security of that empire's money. It's absolutely fascinating 
that one tool could have such drastic effect. And we're all led to believe that it was, oh, it was, it was this specific leader in this specific war. But usually the war is just a result of the debasement of the money. That They started debasing the money and then just doing whatever, like, uh, exploiting that mass, massive amount of wealth that they could confiscate and then starting wars that no one would actually afford or attempt to pay for otherwise. It was the exploitation of the money that resulted in the war. So it wasn't the war that was the big moment, like the big uh, shift in society. It was the debasing of the currency that led to all of those events. And we see this again and again of money that had been hard in like a a local sense or um, uh, had been sound money at once. And then after you know, after extended periods of debasement and stuff, that, that, that moral hazard comes to a head and you get this one single generation of massive change where everything comes to a head, where all the debts um, uh, basically get called due uh, and the value of that money uh, basically can no longer be cheated. You can't hide the manipulation anymore um, because markets will always tend toward um, equilibrium, even when, like, and, and you can only s- send and market false information for so long before things finally adjust. And I love this quote um, that he gave from Swiss banker Ferdinand Lips, quote, although the emperors of Rome frantically tried to manage their economies, they only succeeded in making matters worse. Price and wage controls and legal tender laws were passed, but it was like trying to hold back the tides. Rioting, corruption, lawlessness, and a mindless mania for speculation and gambling engulfed the empire like a plague. Could we not, could that, (laughs) could that statement not perfectly apply to where we are today? Look at the modern financial world. Look at what is happening across Europe, in the U.S., um, in, in Venezuela. Look at what is happening and tell me that that is not absolutely applicable to everything that is happening. This is a monetary shift that we are going through. We are seeing the consequences of bad money. This is all a story of money. It is so critical to the sustainability of society. And it changes our behavior, it changes our culture, it changes what we do and what we value. It, it, is, it cannot be disconnected from anything. And I love how well just this, this short section uh, uh, basically uh, it just encapsulates that. We go through so many like great just short examples of uh, monetary history. And oh, 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 man, how did I not mention the yap? I'm not going to go into this because I've done a full episode on the Rye Stones. Um, and uh, it's called The Island of Stone Money. It's a piece uh, written by Milton Friedman. And uh, I go into a lot of commentary because I love this. I feel like uh, I've always felt that the Rye Stone analogy is actually one of the uh, first examples of a virtual money. That uh, The Rye Stones are one of the best examples of a system very much like Bitcoin, which uh, uh, Robert Breedlove actually gets to that analogy a little bit later on. So we'll be hitting that again, but just don't forget that I'll have that in the show notes and I'll put it in the Twitter post as well so that we can uh, 
if you want to de- do a deep dive into that concept, you definitely can. Uh, but, you know what, let's go ahead and close this commentary here. Let's, um, I'm actually going to take another break. I'm not exhausted yet. I'm not, I'm not tired. Um, and I've been loving this piece. So let's go ahead and take another break. I'm, I'm going to go get a drink and stretch for a second, and then we'll sit back down and get back into this. We'll start back with the Global Gold Standard. All right, I know I just said accidentally the uh, uh, the Global Gold Standard, but we are actually going into the section, the hardness of gold. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's jump back in. The hardness of gold. By this point in history, virtually everyone had come to fully trust gold's superior stock-to-flow ratio and therefore believed they could use it to reliably store value across time. After thousands of years of mining this chemically stable element, virtually all the gold ever procured by humans is still a part of its extant supply. The stock of all the gold in the world fits into an Olympic-sized swimming pool today and is valued at almost 8 trillion U.S. dollars. Gold is rare in the Earth's crust, and extraction is costly in terms of time and energy, which keeps its flow predictably low. It is impossible to synthesize gold by chemical means, as alchemy never panned out, and the only way to increase its supply is through mining. The costliness of gold mining is the skin in the game necessary to increase its flow, the risk necessary to procure the reward. Skin in the game is a concept based on symmetry, a balance of incentives and disincentives. In addition to upside exposure, people should also be penalized if something for which they are responsible for goes wrong or hurts others. Skin in the game is the central pillar for properly functioning systems and is at the heart of hard money. For gold, its mining costs and risks form the disincentives which are balanced against the incentives of its market price. Unless consequential decisions are made by people who are exposed to the results of their decisions, the system is vulnerable to total collapse, an important consideration when we discuss soft government money later. Every market-driven evolutionary step for money has naturally selected the form with the highest stock-to-flow ratio available to its population, but stopped when the form lost this key property. With the highest stock-to-flow ratio of all the monetary metals, gold is the hardest physical form of money that has ever existed, which explains its success as hard money throughout history. Even with advances in mining techniques, gold still has a relatively low and predictable flow, as evidenced by its annual supply growth since 1970. Gold mining, of course, only makes economic sense if the cost of producing an additional ounce of gold is less than gold's market price per ounce. Relatedly, when the price of gold increases, its mining becomes more profitable and draws new miners into the market and makes new methods of gold mining economically feasible. 
This in turn increases the flow of gold until supply and demand forces again reach equilibrium. So although gold is the hardest form of physical money, it doesn't have perfect hardness as changes in demand for it elicit both a supply and price response. Meaning, an increase in the demand for gold increases its price. An increase in the price of gold incentivizes gold miners to increase its flow. An increase in the flow of gold increases its supply. And an increase in the supply of gold puts downward pressure on its price. In this way, changes in demand for gold are expressed partially in its price and partially in its supply flow. This price elasticity is true for all physical commodities. For all practical purposes, as we will see later, the Earth always has more natural resources to yield, assuming the right amount of time and effort are directed towards their production. This will support an important point later when we look at the impact of changes in demand on Bitcoin's price. Final Settlement Gold also has the advantage of being an instrument of final settlement, whereas the use of government money requires trust in the monetary policy and creditworthiness of the issuing authority or payment intermediaries, known as counterparty risk, the act of physically possessing gold comprises all of the trust factors and permissions necessary to use it as money. This makes gold a self-sovereign form of money. This is best understood as an identity of the universal accounting equation. Assets equals liabilities plus owner's equity. When you own gold, free and clear, it is your asset and no one else's liability meaning that your personal balance sheet includes a 100% gold asset matched by 0% liabilities and 100% owner's equity, since no one else has a claim on your gold asset. This makes gold a bearer instrument, meaning that any individual in physical possession of the asset is presumed to be its rightful owner. This timeless and trustless nature of gold is the reason why it still serves as the base money and final settlement system of central banks worldwide. In the 19th century, the term cash referred to central bank gold reserves, which was the dominant self-sovereign monetary good at the time. Cash settlement referred to the transfer of physical gold between central banks to execute final settlement. Central banks can only settle with finality in physical gold and do so periodically in the modern era since it is the only form of money that requires no trust in any counterparty, is politically neutral, and gives its holders full sovereignty over their money. This is why gold maintains its monetary role even today as only the delivery of a bearer instrument can truly be the final extinguisher of debt. In this original sense of the word cash, gold is the only form of dominant cash money that has ever existed. Although Bitcoin is well suited to serve a similar role in the digital age, more on this later. Unfortunately, the combination of gold's self-sovereignty and physicality 
would lead to the demise of the gold standard. Centralization of Gold By the end of the 19th century, all the industrialized nations of the world were officially on the gold standard. By virtue of operating on a hard money basis, most of the world witnessed unprecedented levels of capital accumulation, free global trade, restrained government, and improving living standards. Some of the most important achievements and inventions in human history were made during this era, which came to be known as La Belle Epoque across Europe and the Gilded Age within the United States. This golden era enabled by the gold standard remains one of the greatest periods in human history. Quote, La Belle Epoque was a period characterized by optimism, regional peace, economic prosperity, an apex of colonial empires, and technological, scientific, and cultural innovations. In the climate of the period, the arts flourished. Many masterpieces of literature, music, theater, and visual art gained recognition. End quote. As multiple societies had now converged on gold as their universal store of value, they experienced significant decreases in trade costs and an attendant increase in free trade and capital accumulation. La Belle Epoque was an era of unprecedented global prosperity. However, the hard money gold standard which catalyzed it suffered from a major flaw. Settlement in physical gold was cumbersome expensive, and insecure. This flaw is associated with the physical properties of gold as it is dense, not deeply divisible, and not easily transactable. Gold is expensive to store, protect, and transport. It is also heavy per unit of volume, which makes it difficult to use for day-to-day -day transactions. As discussed earlier, banks built their business model around solving these problems by providing secure, custody for people's gold hoards. Soon after, banks began issuing paper bank notes that were fully redeemable in gold. Carrying and transaction with paper bank notes backed by gold was much easier than using actual gold. Offering superior utility and convenience, the use of banknotes flourished. This, along with government programs to confiscate gold from citizens, such as Executive Order 6102 in the United States, encouraged the centralization of gold supplies within bank vaults all over the world. Incapable of resisting the temptation of wealth expropriation by tampering with the money supply, banks soon began issuing more notes than their gold reserves could justify, thus initiating the practice of fractional reserve banking. This banking model facilitated the creation of money without any skin in the game. Governments took notice and began to gradually take over the banking sector by forming central banks, as this model enabled them to engage in seniorage, a method of profiting directly from the money creation process. The ability to control this process was too tempting for governments to resist. Total control over the money supply gave those in charge a mechanism to continually extract wealth from its citizenry. 
The virtually unlimited financial wealth that the printing press provided gave those in power the means to silence dissent, finance propaganda, and wage perpetual warfare. It is a fundamental economic reality that wealth cannot be generated by tampering with the money supply. It can only be manipulated and redistributed. Civilization itself relies on the integrity of the money supply to provide a solid economic foundation for free trade and capital accumulation. With a firm grip on the prevailing monetary order established, the next logical step for central banks was to begin moving away from the gold standard altogether. Abolishing the Gold Standard By 1914, most of the major economies had begun printing money in excess of their gold reserves at the onset of World War I. Unsurprisingly, this had many negative consequences, some of which were immediate, while others came on more slowly. Eliminating the gold standard immediately destabilized the unit of count by which all economic activity was assessed. Government currency exchange rates would now float against one another and become a source of economic imbalance and confusion. This distorted price signals, which would now be denominated in various government currencies with rapidly fluctuating exchange rates. This made the task of economic planning as difficult as trying to build a house with an elastic measuring tape. For a world that was becoming increasingly globalized and technologically sophisticated, freely floating currency exchange rates represented a significant step backwards and gave rise to what is commonly called a system of partial barter. For people to buy goods from other people who lived on the other side of any number of imaginary lines called national borders, they would now be required to use more than one medium of exchange, their own currency and the foreign currency, to complete the transaction. To an extent, this reignited the non-coincidence of wants problem, which money was meant to solve in the first place. Today, over $5 trillion of foreign currencies are exchanged daily, forming an annual market valued at over 12 times global GDP. This industry is purely parasitic. It enriches bankers and sucks real value out of society in the form of global trade frictions, market distortions, and transaction fees. For this reason, it is excluded from GDP calculations and exists solely because of the inefficiencies caused by centrally controlled capital markets and the absence of a global, politically neutral hard money system. The resultant frictions to global trade fanned the flames of warfare. Governments take control. As 20th century wars raged, so did the printing presses. Governments and their central banks continued to grow more powerful with each new banknote printed as their citizens became poorer. The death stroke came when most governments, due to a unilateral decision of President Nixon in the United States, finally severed the peg to gold entirely in 1971. Which brings us to the modern form of dominant money, government fiat money. Fiat is a Latin word meaning decree, order, 
or authorization. This is why government money is commonly referred to as fiat money, since its value exists solely because of government decree. Today, the U.S. dollar is not redeemable for anything, and its value is derived solely from government decree. Paradoxically, people were coerced into adopting soft government fiat money only because of their shared belief in gold as a hard monetary good. This is an imperative point. It was possession of gold, self-sovereign, hard money, that gave governments the power to decree the value of their fiat money, or soft money, in the first place. National governments were only able to achieve, quote, sovereignty because they drew this power from their possession of gold. Paradoxically, people were coerced into discarding the gold standard and adopting soft government fiat money only because of their belief in gold as a hard monetary good. This is proof that it is possible to create an artificial asset and endow it with monetary properties, whether by decree or by market-driven natural selection. Governments did so by stealing gold from citizens, which gave them the power to create fiat money and decree its value by force. As we will later see, Satoshi Nakamoto did so by creating Bitcoin and releasing it into the marketplace as a self-sovereign money free to compete for the trust and belief of the people based on its own merits. As we will later see, Satoshi Nakamoto did so by creating Bitcoin and releasing it into the marketplace as a self-sovereign money free to compete for the trust and belief of the people based on its own merits. Central banks also began engaging in propaganda campaigns, declaring the end of gold's monetary role. However, their actions rang louder than their words as they continued to accumulate and hold gold, a practice they continue to this day. Gold remains the exclusive instrument of final settlement between central banks. Strategically, holding large gold reserves also makes sense for central banks since they can opt to sell reserves into the market should gold start to appreciate too quickly and threaten the value of fiat money. With their monopoly position protected and reinforced by legal tender laws, propagandist, and sufficient control of the gold market, central banks were free to print money at will. This exorbitant privilege gives central banks extraordinary power and made them extremely dangerous entities. In the words of former U.S. President Andrew Jackson, spoken at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, quote, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. End quote. Unlike the flow restrictions associated with gold mining, there are practically no economic restraints preventing a government from printing more fiat money. Since there is virtually no cost associated with producing additional units, 
no skin in the game, government fiat money is the softest form of money in the history of the world. Predictably, money supplies grew quickly, especially in the heat of warfare. In the past, for societies operating with hard money systems, once the tide of war had shifted in favor of one belligerent over the other, treaties were quick to be negotiated, as war is an extraordinarily expensive endeavor. The fiat money printing press, on the other hand, gave governments the ability to tap the aggregate wealth of entire populations to finance military operations by implicitly taxing them via inflation. This provided a more secretive, implicit method of funding warfare than explicit taxation or selling government wartime bonds. Wars began lasting much longer and became more violent. It is no coincidence that the century of total war coincided with the century of central banking. Begin table. Uh, he's got a table here of the conflicts um, steadily costing more in human lives. And in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century, he's got the conflict-related deaths in millions of people versus the world population uh, with mid in, uh, in the middle of the century. And then, uh, finally, the conflict-related deaths as share of the world population. So I'll just hit the final percent number, um, just so you can kind of see the trend that's happening here. In the 16th century, war-related or conflict-related deaths were 0.32% of the world population. In the 17th century, it was 1.05%. In the 18th century, it actually declined just slightly at 0.92%, and then took another increase in the 19th century at 1.65%, and then with a huge increase in the 20th century at 4.35% of uh, the share of the world population in conflict-related deaths. And it totals for the 20th century. Um, in the 19th century, there were 19 million deaths. In the 20th century, there was 109.7 million deaths related to military conflict. End table. As is to be expected, soft government money has an abysmal track record as a store of value. This becomes abundantly clear when we look at its inflationary effects on the price of gold. An ounce of gold in 1971 was worth $35. Today it is worth over $1,200, a decrease of over 97% in the value of each dollar due entirely to inflation. Based on these figures, it is easy to see that gold continues to appreciate as its supply has increased less quickly than the supply of U.S. dollars. The constantly increasing supply of government money means its currency depreciates continuously as wealth is stolen from the holders of the currency, or assets denominated in it, and transferred to those who print the currency or receive it earliest. This transfer of wealth is known as the Cancelon effect. The primary beneficiaries from expansionary monetary policy are the first recipients of the new money who are able to spend it before it has entered wider circulation and caused prices to rise. Generally, this is why inflation hurts the poorest and helps the bankers, who are closest to the spigot of liquidity 
the government fiat money printing press in the modern economy. A centrally planned market for money like this completely contradicts the principles of free market capitalism. Free market capitalism versus socialism. In a socialist system, the government owns and controls all means of production. This ultimately makes the government the sole buyer and seller of all capital goods in its economy. Such centralization stifles market functions like price signals and makes decision-making highly ineffective. Without accurate pricing of capital goods to signal their relative supply, demand, and relevant market conditions, there is no rational way to determine the most productive allocation of capital. Further, there is no rational way to determine how much to produce of each capital good. Scarcity is the starting point of all economics, and people's choices are meaningless without skin in the game in the form of price or trade-offs. A survey without a price would find that everyone wants to own a private island, but when price is included, very few can afford to own a private island. The point here is not to trumpet free market capitalism over socialism, but rather to clearly explicate the difference between the two ways of allocating resources and making production decisions. Free market capitalism places trust in price signals. Socialism places trust in centralized planning. A free market is one in which buyers and sellers are free to transact on terms determined solely by them, where entry and exit into the market are free and no third parties can restrict or subsidize any market participants. Most countries today have well-functioning, relatively free markets. However, every country in the world today engages in centralized planning of the market for money, aka the market for financial capital itself. No country in the world today as a free market for money, which is the most important market in any economy. In a modern economy, the market for money consists of the market's loanable funds. These markets match savers with borrowers using the interest rate as their price signal. In a free market for loanable funds, the supply of loanable funds rises as the interest rate rises, as more people are willing to loan their savings out at a higher price. Conversely, the demand for loanable funds decreases as the interest rate rises, as less people are inclined to borrow funds at a higher price. Notice that the interest rate in a free market for capital is always positive because of people's naturally positive time preference, meaning that no one would part with money unless they could receive more of it in the future. These natural market forces are artificially manipulated in every market for money in the world. All markets for money in the world today are centrally planned by central banks who are responsible for managing the market for loanable funds using monetary policy tools. Since banks today also engage in fractional reserve banking, they lend out not only customers' savings, but also their demand deposits, monies available to customers on demand, like checking accounts. By loaning out demand deposits to a borrower, while simultaneously keeping them available to the depositor, banks can effectively create new artificial money 
a part of the money creation process from earlier. Central banks have the power to manipulate the market for financial capital and can artificially increase the money supply by reducing interest rates, which increases demand for borrowing and money creation by banks, lowering the required reserve ratios, allowing banks to lend more money out than their capital reserves justify, purchasing government debt or other financial assets with newly created money in the open market, and relaxing lending eligibility criteria, allowing banks to increase lending activities and money creation. In a free market for money, the exact amount of savings equals the exact amount of loanable funds available to borrowers for the production of capital goods. This is why the availability of capital goods, as we see with Harold and Lewis, is inexorably linked to a reduction in consumption. Again, scarcity is the starting point of all economics, and its most important implication is the notion that all decisions involve trade-offs. In the free market for money, the opportunity cost of saving is foregone consumption, and the opportunity cost of consumption is foregone saving, an indisputable economic reality. No amount of central planning can alter this fundamental economic reality. This is why centrally planned markets always suffer from distortions, aka bubbles, surpluses, or shortages, as political agendas run up against the underlying free market forces. Undeterred, central banks continually attempt to manage these market forces to achieve politically established policy goals. Most often, central banks are trying to spur economic growth and consumption so they will increase the supply of loanable funds and lower the interest rate. With the price of loanable funds, the interest rate, artificially suppressed, producers take on more debt to start projects than there are savings to finance these projects. These artificially low interest rates don't provide any benefit to the economy. Rather, they simply disseminate distorted price signals that encourage producers to embark on projects which cannot realistically be financed from actual savings. This creates a market distortion. In other words, blows up another bubble in which the value of consumption deferred is less than the value of the savings borrowed. This distortion can persist for some time, but will inevitably unwind with disastrous consequences as economic reality cannot be fooled for long. The excess supply of loanable funds, backed by no actual deferred consumption, initially encourages producers to borrow, as they believe the funds will allow them to buy all the capital goods necessary for their project to succeed. As more producers borrow and bid for the same amount of capital goods, inflation sets in and prices begin to rise. At this point, the market manipulation is exposed since the projects become unprofitable after the rise in capital goods prices due to inflation and suddenly begin to fail. Projects like these would not have been undertaken in the first place absent of the distortions in the market for money created by central banks. An economy-wide simultaneous failure of overextended projects like this is called a recession. 
The boom and bust business cycle we have all grown accustomed to in the modern economy is an inevitable consequence of this centrally planned market manipulation. The United States and Europe saw a great illustration of this process when the dot-com bubble of the late 1990s was replaced by the housing bubble of the mid-2000s. Free market capitalism cannot function without a free market for money. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the hardness of gold. Um, and uh, uh, it, it shows that it's amazing how much gold was trusted because of that, that stock to flow and how long that network effect had lasted that um, uh, like some of those limitations of gold, some of those physical limitations that was, is actually uh, a part of what made it such a good monetary instrument were actually the same things that led to its demise. Um, its, uh, its density, its stability like as an element, um, like the fact that it has a physical nature, like all of these things actually ended up being part of what made it uh, corruptible when we got to a modern economy that moved as fast as ours does today. I thought that statistic, though, was really interesting that the $8 trillion worth of gold in the economy, um, or just in the world, um, actually fits into an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Um, you realize it's just not a lot of gold. I mean, it's pretty fascinating that, um, that it is, in fact, that scarce of a good, just in the actual volume of the supply. Now, he goes into the costliness of gold mining as skin in the game, which is a really important kind of game theory, uh, a concept of, you know, um, balancing incentives and disincentives, as he puts it, um, uh, uh, cost and reward symmetry. This is something that's absolutely critical to the free market, that the people who, who make the wrong decisions are the ones who pay the cost. This is where you get all this huge moral hazard from things like bailouts or government programs that end up being disastrous, but legitimately never get deleted. Um, and uh, uh, it's like people, people don't realize, you stop and think that the point of a recession, a recession is a critical, just, just because recession means like things are tough for a short amount of time, you forget what critically important role they actually play in the economy. It's like the fact that they are bad, that they're, they're a correction of an imbalance, is so important that they actually take place, they actually happen. Because a recession is when those projects that were not properly planned, when those debts that were not actually fulfillable, like when all those things that we started engaging in or projects that began that could not be fulfilled actually got canceled, where the irresponsible actors or even the corrupt actors finally had to pay the price of their manipulation or the corruption or their irresponsibility. That is when the bad banks go out of business and the good responsible banks that had savings and were issuing the correct policies rise to the top. They gain market share as these voids open up from the collapsed businesses that did not know how to properly plan for maybe a swing in the market or uh, the fact that uh, savings was going to take a turn to the negative and we were going to have to figure out how to adjust 
that they simply were not sustainable. They could not properly foresee events in the future. It is critical that these companies, that these business practices get eliminated, that they get pushed out of the economy. And the simple truth is when we don't have these market corrections, when they actually, like the Federal Reserve in the United States, like when they, they basically bring their big system in cahoots and manipulate the price of money, debt, and interest rates um, into propping up and avoiding these minor, like these small, should-be-regular recessions that we would normally have, is that you, sus- you create an environment where these irresponsible actors can actually succeed for 10 years, even more. They can grow where um, responsible actors or in, uh, uh, non-corrupt actors, actors actually get pushed out of the market because they are not using the corrupt practices. That's one of those situations where like a market, or excuse me, a bank in this market that did not engage in fractional reserve banking would go out of business in almost no time simply because they would not have the funds to make the margins. They'd never be able to um, charge the price, offer the services that fractional reserve banking offers um, at the prices that they offer simply because they, um, they're pulling from the exact same monetary pool. And what they're essentially able to do, the fractional reserve uh, companies is to, or banks, is to make huge amounts of interest on money that doesn't exist. So their margins are way, way bigger than an actual responsible bank would be. So it's, it literally creates an environment where responsible businesses can't succeed and where a recession would have immediately wiped out the fractional reserve policies very early. It was created systemic into our economy and legal system. And then also the the manipulation of the prices of debt and the avoidance of these recessions into these, creating these giant business cycles that create these long-term, like, you know, 10, 15-year bubbles that then collapse in this huge, spectacular, like, oh, we missed 10 recessions, so let's just do it all at once. Um, that uh, uh, it, it just creates such an incredible imbalance. And to know that at the exact same time, it massively profits and benefits the bankers and um, this huge financial elite, this bloated market that literally could not be sustained otherwise at the workers' expense. It's just totally crazy how out of whack it is. Um, There's a great book by uh, Nassim uh, Taleb uh, called Skin in the Game um, that just talks about this whole theory. And if you've never read Nassim, he's uh, a bit abrasive. Um, and kind of, I think probably my first impression of him when I started uh, uh, reading one of his books, I think it w- I don't think I read Skin in the Game first. I think I read Anti Fragility. I don't know. He's got a number of good books, um, but he comes off as kind of a jackass. Um, so uh, it's it's one to ease into. So I'll just I'll just say it, it might seem a little bit aggressive at first, but it's a really good read, and I still highly recommend it. Um, okay, let's get, let me get a drink here. It's getting later in the day here. I'm, uh, we've been going for a very long time today. This is going to be a crazy long episode. I got a lot of editing to do still, too. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about 
um, uh, gold, actually. So one of the things I think that's generally poorly understood about why gold ended up failing as a monetary system um, in the modern economy, which Breedlove, Robert Breedlove does a really good job of like hitting a succinct version of this um, in what we just read, was that um, those, physical same, those physical characteristics, the aspects that actually made it a strong metal and like consistently valuable over time, its physical nature, nature gave it limitations in our, the, the age that birthed, you know, the telegraph, the phone network, and then now the internet, that we were increasingly doing business, even in the late 19th century, in such a way, in, like, at a fast enough pace, um, that it was really inconvenient to carry around or move significant value in gold. It's a very, as you said, it's a very dense, heavy metal, and because of that, uh, because its value is actually so dense at the same time, it's hard to transact in small amounts. That's what uh, uh, led to the continued use of silver as a uh, kind of a monetary, like a second um, a second layer in the value monetary value networks, I guess you could say. Um, but one thing that he kind of skips over, which I think is actually a pretty interesting intermediary step between when we were using physical gold coin, like coins as like our actual transaction, and then when gold-backed bills essentially failed, um, as the gold standard broke down into really in the very early 1900s, just before World War One, um, but there was no actual like efficient or fast way to verify that a coin was actually a full ounce of gold. It was actually really costly and time-consuming and you know, a, a general test would actually compromise the coin itself in a minor way just to check. And so, and none of it was really 100% effective. Like, the tests that were 100% effective were incredibly costly. Um, so most tests, most verification was just a good enough verification for general value, like lower mid-value transactions. And he talks about how gold's, uh, uh, Breedlove talks about in the piece how gold coins became standardized. Um, and essentially, the florin was the first one, and then a lot of major banking institutions and governments around the world uh, tried to uh, essentially matched that standard um, moving forward. And you had this essentially, you didn't have all these um, uh, currencies fluctuating um, against each other. But there were some limitations, there were some attack vectors, I guess you could say in this system as well, because people would have to trust the coinage. You would still have a bit of counterparty risk in trusting the stamp on the coin instead of actually verifying the gold yourself, which again was really costly and just kind of a pain in the ass. So there are examples during this period of like large institutions or like significant counterfeiting problems um, where like, you know, internal metals or false stamps, like counterfeit stamps were used to pass off coins where only the outer layer was actually gold. Um, and, you know, you'd get uh, counterfeit coins in circulation. And this is still a problem today. Um, I think it was yesterday's show I mentioned about gold bars that were full of tungsten and some other metal um, that were actually in the reserves of a large bank under a... Uh, I, I still can't remember i never actually verified but i'm pretty sure it was like a canadian mint like stamp or something but they don't know they don't even know to the degree 
of uh, like how much they are susceptible um, to that. It, as far as I read that story um, and checked back up on it a couple months later, they never went through and checked their gold reserve. So they still don't, outside of the one that was caught, they have no idea how much of that is fake, is counterfeit gold. Um, there may be new updates since, but I was just kind of mind blown at the time that they would just try to push this under the rug like, oh, I'm just not, we're just not going to check, we're not going to look, and everything will be okay, and let's not talk about it. Which is kind of the, the nature of financial problems these days. Uh, that's really the culture around the whole thing. Um, but this problem basically just got exacerbated. It, it, it kind of got two layers worse when we moved to redeemable gold bills because the verification was a completely different uh, issue. Um, it essentially required a full audit of the bank's reserves. And because, obviously, uh, you would not have that, um, uh, even, even if you did have it, you'd have it at incredibly long time periods, banks just get arrogant and they're like, you just trust our bills, so nobody knows exactly how much we have in, in our vault right now. Why don't we just issue... I'll issue another few hundred bills and just not tell anybody about it. That temptation was massive because of the ability for them to confiscate resources, to um, you know, buy up market share and equity and like real valuable goods and earn interest on capital that they're just inventing. There is there is no power that is quite as strong or is quite as uh uh, impactful is the ability to create money out of nothing. To essentially be the only person in the economy with a tree that grows money. Um, like, I mean, what a great... I mean, imagine, imagine. Like, you would never have to do anything. You could constantly consume resources, and as long as you didn't uh, uh, essentially abuse it to the point of destroying the value of the money, you could get away with it indefinitely. The statistic on the number of deaths for like wartime, um, like like for conflict, a conflict-based like deaths, um, is pretty shocking. I didn't realize exactly how bad it is. There's a, a couple of very interesting things on YouTube, and I think there's like a documentary that I've seen in the past. I'll see if I can't find a couple of these talking about how. These alternative views of like World War One and World War Two, where they just take, they just track what happens to the currencies in these countries, because there's this like World War One is so makes so much more sense from the concept of a currency war, um, and uh, I think there's one that's a little bit I'm not sure if this is one of the best ones, but there's one I know that's titled All Wars Are Bankers Wars. And it really hits on the conflict of currencies and that, that there, is a, there is a serious seed of all of these conflicts in the desire and the fight to own the printing press for money. And uh, I love that quote. Um, uh, where, it is it, where is it that... Uh, uh, and it's actually Ron Paul. This was a major Ron Paul quote from back in the day. Uh, but this no coincidence that the century of total war coincided with the century of central banking. The ability to manipulate the money, to confiscate so many resources. I mean, imagine if you could steal one penny from everyone in the world today. 
how wealthy you would be, how much aggregate resources and labor you would have confiscated for everyone, from everyone, without them seeing it. It's invisible. But it is no less theft. It's just really clever theft. And the fact that that ability, that, that single ability and that, that monopolistic power enables such extraordinary waste and death is, I mean, it, we, we, there's more, four point, what was it? Where's the freaking table? 4.23% was it? Oh man, I can't even find it in here. Like scrolling back and forth. It was something in the low 4% of the entire, 4.35% deaths as a share of world population. Almost one twentieth of the world population was killed in war because of the power to confiscate resources for frivolous conquering through the debasement of currency. I don't think you can overstate just how powerful the corruption of soft money and the restrictions on government power and violence that a hard money provides. That it is, it is the most, as the foundation of society, there is nothing that can either enable or prevent, provide a restriction on uh, enormous expenditures on just absolute destruction. Because nobody, who would pay for that willingly? Like even direct taxation, as we talked about that in the uh, Raleigh Bitcoin meetup recently, that with sound money, you can't run a deficit. The only way to run a deficit is to either actually borrow real money from someone or to issue some sort of token that you claim is redeemable for that money, but that has to, uh, has to circulate separately from the money that you're actually using. You cannot run a deficit as a country unless you are in control of the money. So, I don't know. It's a, I think this leads to... I'm so excited we're finally getting into the Bitcoin section. Um, this was a great... Robert Breedlove does a wonderful job of just breaking down all the major pieces in kind of as quickly as you can uh, through the history of some of this through the nature of gold, how gold came about, why it lasted his money for so long, about the rye stones, um, which I definitely encourage you guys to listen to that one. If you have not listened to the Island of Stone money piece yet, uh, that is one of my absolute favorites, like personal favorites as far as like an analogy and historical example of something that is essentially Bitcoin done in practice. Uh, and that it worked for centuries. It is one of the most fascinating like little sections of history for me. So, highly recommended. Um, but we have been going, it is already, it's almost 9 o'clock. I have been, I have been moving from place to place, just recording like crazy all day. My voice is a little bit sore. But we are finally finished with uh, the money section of Money, Bitcoin, and Time. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to follow Robert Breedlove. That is at Breedlove22. That's the Twitter handle. 
I will have all the links. I try to have all the links that I mentioned in the show notes so you can dive a little bit deeper. And we will be, uh, I will be starting in tomorrow on uh, the Bitcoin section. And we'll talk about how Bitcoin changes all of this and what, uh, what it means, what the impact on society will be with a technology like this if it continues to succeed in the future. So much stuff to cover. So thank you again for joining me. Um, and uh, don't forget to follow me at The Crypto Economy on Twitter. And until next time, take it easy, guys. Mm-hmm.